great to see people back again, maybe after some time off. I'm definitely glad to be back here. Um, maybe familiar with this scenario, it's the reality TV talent contest. The contestant has just either sang or danced or, or beat, and now they're standing in front of the judges to hear their verdict. The gentle, encouraging judge, they go first and they say some lovely, kind things, but we know the only comments that count are the comments of that surly judge in the end and what he has to say. And he delivers his verdict. Mediocre. In other words, it's been a failure. If something's described to us as mediocre, if we're described as mediocre, that's pretty much an insult today. We don't like to be mediocre. We aspire for better things, for more. We've got more ambition than that, higher achievement. If we can do anything about it, we like to lift ourselves from this mediocrity. I'm with a man who said, it's wretched taste to be gratified with mediocrity when there's excellent things that lie before us. Why be satisfied with a microwave ready meal when there's a gourmet feast cooked by Jamie Oliver on offer? But if I'm honest with, and look at myself enough, I can see even though I'm ambitious in so many areas of my life, there's sometimes... I'd settle for spiritual mediocrity, mediocrity in my spiritual life. And without presuming too heavily, I'm not surprised if I'm alone in that this morning. So how would I describe what I mean by spiritual mediocrity? It's being content with the level you're at and not desiring more of the excellent things that God has on offer for you. It might look like coming to church here for a while, feeling feeling settled and comfortable here, but maybe not taking that first step to, to pray to God for the first time, not taking the excellent thing that's on offer. Or maybe you've been a Christian many years and the routine is getting tired and dull. You feel like you're more in maintenance mode than the excitement of growing and developing in your faith. You're just not taking the excellent things that are on offer. We could recognize this mediocrity in ourselves, be dissatisfied, want to do something about it. Or sometimes we're just perfectly happy to stay where we are and not aspire to that more excellent way of life that God has for us. Either way, there's a pretty useful diagnosis to this. The sign of a meal I'm going to cook is mediocre will be the unambitious ingredients I buy. The sign of football team in the World Cup's not going to do well. Look at their training sessions. I think the real litmus test for our spiritual life is our prayers. Prayers are very often a useful indicator. If we pray, what we pray for, what causes us to pray. And this morning, it is a prayer, again, that we're focusing on in, our, in, the, in the book of Philippians. This summer, we've been looking at the prayers of Paul. And here we come, come to another one. This one's a very short prayer. It only goes from verses 9 to 11. But it's a very powerful prayer. So it prays for the really big things, things of eternal significance. And too often our prayers are too little. We're, we're not ambitious in what we pray for. But in this prayer, we will find a remedy for this spiritual mediocrity. So let me just read the prayer again. If you have your Bibles in front of you, um, it's on page 1178. And I'm going to read from verses 9 to 11 again, just to remind us the words of Paul's prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, this prayer is a remedy for mediocrity because look at the aim stated in verse 10 that will discern what is best. Or if you look at other versions, they'll use the word excellent or what's superior. That's what we're thinking about. And that's what Paul is aiming for. Not content with mediocrity, but looking for the excellent, the best or the superior. Now, if we're aspiring for this, the big problem is, how do we know what is best? It's great to be told, go for the best, but it's not always obvious. So we're going to need some encouragement in this. And I think Paul's the right man for this. This passage isn't used to make you feel guilty. It very easily could be used for that. But it's not. It's clearly coming from an encouraging teacher, from a loving perspective. Look at verse 8, if you have that open. I long for you all with the affection of Christ. See, Paul loves who he is writing to so deeply. And if you love someone you want the best for them. Parents say of their children, you know, I just want the best for them. I want the best opportunities. I just want them to get on well. If you're saying goodbye to a friend and someone you care about, you're like wishing them all the best, all the best for what they're going on to do. And Paul, in his love that he professes, shows he wants the best here. And he prays that they go beyond mediocrity. So how do we know what's best what well, all begins with love. So my first point this morning is knowledgeable love leads to discerning what is best. Loving more, that's quite a recurring biblical theme. I don't think many people are going to argue with that one. It seems like quite a good command. But before you think this is the same thing you've heard before and elsewhere in the Bible, look what Paul adds on to it. He says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, knowledge and depth of insight don't sound like very lovey-dovey words. They sound academic, like a relationship in a classroom or a laboratory, and they're not very romantic places. But let's think about a couple in love. And instead of knowledge, let's use the opposites. Can their love grow more and more in ignorance and unfamiliarity? Will blind sentimentality be enough to sustain their love? Of course, knowledge is needed. I couldn't claim to love someone if I didn't want to go beyond a superficial level of getting to know them. Couples and friends, they get to love each other more as they see what each other are good at, um, what they're interested in, how they make each other laugh. You're growing in this knowledge of each other. And how do you respond in love? You respond in love by taking that interest, by asking the questions, where have people come from, what do they enjoy doing, and trying to join in with them in that. See, love in a relationship is tied so, so closely to knowledge and depth of insight. That sentimentality or lovey-doveyness, that actually comes as a response to the knowledge, what we know about them first, and then causes us to express that in a relationship in love. And this is the same in our relationship with God. Our love for God grows as we grow in knowledge of him. If you're a Christian, can you remember the first time you understood what it meant that Jesus died on the cross for you? Did that not stir you to love for the great thing he had done? Or maybe you've been at the North Coast 
this summer uh, and you've looked out on an evening at Port Stewart at the sunset. And the knowledge that God is the creator of that, of something so beautiful, does it not stir you to love him even more? Or maybe you've had the experience, we've, we've heard some of the Psalms this morning. The Psalmist writes in 119, he thinks about God's law, he thinks about what God has actually said in the rest of scripture. And he realizes it's so good and he praises God when he sees the wisdom in it. As he studied God's law and thought about it, it's actually caused him to love God more. So growing more in knowledge of God and his word, that's going to make us love him more. But also, it'll make us love others. Notice um, the love in verse 9. It is undirected. It's not specifically about God, but it's a general. Paul prays that we generally grow in more love for others. Of course, you may want to flag up a danger with this approach. You may say overemphasizing knowledge is a dangerous thing. As our first reaction, knowledge is academic. It's cold. It's removed from the heart. I'm not so sure. Uh, I think that's true to an extent. It's possible to recite the Ten Commandments. It's possible to know all the Bible stories and not have a love for God. But I think true knowledge, if you're growing in knowledge, it's relational. It's getting to know the personal God and what he wants and what he is like. And in fact, any growing in knowledge in this way is just going to deepen and further our love. We shouldn't be afraid of giving our brains over for a little bit of a workout at times, trying to read a Christian book or joining with some friends to, to discuss the Bible and wrestle with what it's saying even if we're having problems with it. See, it's not isolated. It's not an isolated academic activity. But it's all about relational knowledge of God. Just like a friendship grows by listening to each other, learning about each other, so too will our relationship with God. Listening to him as he speaks to us through his word in the Bible and coming into his presence as we speak to him in prayer. Knowledge will grow our love And then our love in return will cause us to want to grow more in this knowledge. So that's the first step in advancing beyond mediocrity, to grow in this love. But love isn't the end in itself in this passage. The love leads on. Let's look at the start of verse 10. The love must grow so that you may be able to discern what is best. And we asked earlier, how do we know what is best? And it's always quite difficult to know especially when there's so many people relying on you, different factors, it can be confusing. Or you might be disappointed with what Paul gives. He, he doesn't lay out the plan for the excellent way of life. He doesn't tell us what's best or even point to us to somewhere else. But that's because achieving this excellence, this what's best in life, requires discernment, which is going to mean a little bit of work on our part. And of course, the reason discernment is needed is because Things are barely, or well, barely ever as black and white as we'd like them to be. Maybe know the stress of making these difficult decisions. I reckon this morning, most people here are thinking about some other difficult decisions that they're having at the moment. It's a moral dilemma and trying to think what is the best way through this. Books and films love to play off moral dilemmas. It's where the intrigue comes, the interest comes, because the answer is not clear. We can debate about it and think about it. So how will this love and knowledge that Paul talks about help us any 
to make our way through our difficult decisions. It's because to grow in love and knowledge and depth of insight is to grow more like Christ. See, Christ was full of this knowledgeable love. Think about how he interacted with people in the Gospels with such knowledge. He knew God's word perfectly. He knew God perfectly. But also such love as he showed to his father, but as he applied that to others, as he showed God's word to others. So to grow more like Christ, growing in a way that our mind transforms to think in an entirely Christ-like way, simply, if you become more like this, your decisions become more in line with what God wants. If your whole character is influenced by this knowledgeable love, then you're going to begin to make your decisions based on this loving and knowledge perspective. And they're the best decisions. And if this love is directed by our knowledge of God and what pleases Him, a knowledge acquired by really getting to know God and what He said in the Bible, that's going to take us beyond mediocrity. God's the creator of life. He knows what's best for us. And growing in love and knowledge of him will help us to see what he wants the best way of life. You think if you get a new product, maybe something technological, and you bring it home, and of course most people's inclination is just to open it, try it, think you can work it out yourself. But if it's something really complex, you never get the best out of it that way. Trial and error only gets you so far. You'll learn a few lessons, but you'll not get the full benefit. What you need would be a demonstration from the designer. You could watch how other people use it, but they'll never use it in the same way as you. Their situation will be different. The best way to learn is a one-on-one relationship with the designer. So thinking about this, how do we approach these different questions in life, these different decisions we have to come up with? Things like, how should I use my free time? Who should I give it to? How should I teach my children this lesson? Should I take this job? What should I do with my money? Well, we need to spend time thinking on these, discerning what's best, but coming at it from this loving and knowledge perspective. Let me take the first one as an example uh, and just apply some general things to that. There's no, when it comes to how to spend your free time, there isn't a black and white answer. I can't give out a set a set order for all of you. Everybody's different. Nor are there just 100% answers either. There's, it's not 100% TV and newspapers. But it's not 100% personal Bible study either. So let's try and think about things from a loving perspective. And free time begins to look different. Of course, a loving perspective towards God is going to shape how we use our free time and our relationship with Him. And I've already said how if we grow in love, then we're going to love growing in knowledge more. But also growing in knowledge of God isn't just about that personal time with him, but it's about enjoying everything in life that he's, he's given us. It's about living a lifestyle where you recognize God has given me family, he's given me friends, he's given me these activities, and as I do them, I enjoy him. If you've read anything by John Piper, you'll know he repeats this phrase over and over again. Love the Lord your God, by enjoying him forever. And we do this in everything that we do. But your love will also show out towards others, and that's important. You're going to sacrifice free time for them, put their interests first. That might look like encouraging 
other Christians. It might look like just spending time with your good friends, your non-Christian friends, and showing them that Jesus through all that you do. You could be learning from God's word in the Bible and what he has to say about family relationships and looking to apply that out as you grow in knowledge and love to them, for them. Of course, you'll still need time to relax, but there's a way you can do this that's even loving. Relaxing from a point of view that says, I'm preparing myself so I'm ready to serve others at other times. See, by living the excellent way of love, you're going to come to discern in these areas what's best. And I know I've been very general there, but I hope the principles are clear. We begin to think about each of these areas in our life and how what God says about it and how acting in a way of love will change that. We've done a bit of that already this year at Kirkpatrick when we've been thinking about our front lines. That's language we've been sort of trying to get used to since January. What I mean by that is the places where we are, day and daily, where God has us, in the home, at work, with friends, the sports club, anywhere like that, just the different places of life where we've been. And we've been trying to think, how can God use me there? How can I best be showing grace, showing compassion? When it comes to new stages of life, it's really important to think through these things. Summer is a time when there's a lot of changes. People start new jobs. Um, people go to university, take a new class at school. It's important to try and think through these things. For me, I'm starting a new job in England in two weeks' time. So as I've been thinking about what this passage has been saying, I've been thinking I need to be praying that God will be showing me how I'm to live, how I'm to show love to people, to my neighbours. How do I make that first impression? To the people I, I meet at work, how do I get in there? How do I work well right from the start? But of course, it's not about just the new things. It's also about reevaluating what we're doing. If we claim that as Christians we're becoming more and more Christ-like as we grow, then we should be seeing differences year on year. If we take time to reevaluate, can we think, how can I show more compassion this year to my friends and neighbours? Is there a way in business I can show more mercy to people, more grace? See, we constantly grow in our Christian life, constantly looking for these changes, not standing still, not settling for where we're at, but always wanting to proceed forward. That's the main point behind Paul's prayer this morning. But I want to follow through in verses 10, 11, and make two more brief points on how Paul finishes off his prayer. So the next point is knowledgeable love leads to righteousness, which is eternally significant. That's a bit of a, a mouthful, but let me, let me try and explain through that. If our character is transforming, like we've just said, uh, and we're growing in this knowledgeable love, we're going to become more discerning. Paul says two things are going to happen as we make these better decisions. We'll become pure and blameless, verse 10, and we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness, verse 11. Pure is more a description of our inside. Our motives will be better if we're motivated by love. They're less likely to be self-centered or um, you know, looking, looking out for ourselves. Our thoughts will be on better things, less full of hate or jealousy, more full of love and compassion. And pure is the inside. Blameless in a way describes how we're seen on the outside, how others perceive us. 
you won't, as you grow more like Christ, people won't be able to as easily pin the labels of hypocrite or judgmental upon you. They'll instead see you as blameless and see the wisdom of your discernment as God works through you. Now, those descriptions seem a little bit far-fetched, a little bit unobtainable. So I must admit, they don't describe me as I am. I still deserve the labels of hypocrite and judgmental from time to time. The point isn't, though, that that's what we are now. The point is, that's what we are becoming. Notice that Paul says we'll be blameless and pure for the day of Christ. The word day of Christ, that's not a reference to judgment day to make you feel guilty. You know, almost a threat. You better be pure and blameless. The reference to the day of Christ is that on that day, if we're trusting in Jesus, he will make us perfect, absolutely perfect on that day. And we'll stay perfect for eternity after that. That's our destiny, if you like. That's who we'll be. And Paul wants us to remember that because he wants us to start on our way to that now. It'd be strange if we didn't. If we said on one hand, heaven's the best place because heaven is, is pure and brilliant. There's nothing wrong there. But then in our life now, we didn't seek to try and achieve that. If we didn't prize purity and blamelessness now, it'd be to completely deny that future and live at odds with it. Living a righteous life, it can almost feel like a chore we're obligated to do. We've signed up to be Christians and now we've got to make a stab at doing these good things. But that's not the way we're to see it at all. We're to see it as the best life, the life that brings most joy, the life that is fullest as we become more and more Christ-like. It's, for Paul, it's a joy to live this way. He says about Christ in the future, to be with him is better by far. And that's why he aims for that purity now, to advance in that way. That's why he prays for those he loves in this way. See, it's going to affect our prayers greatly because it's something of eternal significance. I find an interesting question uh, when preparing for this. Someone asked, what percentage of what you pray for is for things of eternal value? I said earlier, our prayers are usually for things that are too little. We're, We're not ambitious enough. We pray for things that seem very relevant now, but do they have a further significance after an eternal significance? Probably the big example with this is suffering. And we'll pray often that God will lessen someone's, someone we love suffering. And of course, this is something we're going to want to do. But do we also pray the bigger prayer on that? Do we pray that they're becoming more Christ-like? That they're growing in love and knowledge? So remember, this is what is of eternal significance. This is something that will carry through as of much more importance that's maybe tough to think about. But God wants our prayers to expand. He wants them to be from this eternal perspective as he sees things, as we grow in love and knowledge and begin to see it from the way he sees it. And for him, the most important thing is that we grow to be
become more like Christ. My final point this morning is knowledgeable love leads to God glorified. It seems like a pretty daunting task, this becoming more like Christ. It's actually a really hard thing to do. You may have tried, made a resolution, but tried and failed. Is it a question of just putting more effort in? Or is it easier to give up? Or maybe on the other hand, you feel you're actually doing quite well. You understand what I'm saying. You're getting on with it. But almost that can become a badge to wear, a badge of pride. Well, Paul addresses both of these mistakes we can fall into, pride and despair, more so later on in the book of Philippians. But I think we get a hint to it here in this prayer. As we're blameless and pure and become more visible and our discernment bears fruit, Paul tells us about this fruit in verse 11, that it isn't our own, it belongs to Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. If you're despairing that becoming more loving, becoming more like Christ is a task that you can't do, maybe you've tried those resolutions, we need to hear this message that Paul has. Fruit of righteousness just means the visible evidence of goodness that comes from God. That's all a gift from Christ. You need Christ because he helps with it. It's not a case of me telling you or whipping you into shape, try better, be, work harder, all on your own. It's a case of asking Jesus to help you and together you put the effort in, into growing in love and knowledge and purity and blamelessness. Jesus is the one who'll help you become more like Jesus if you ask him and if you pray this prayer that Paul has here before us. As for the proud, well, it's the same message. Any progress you make in your Christian life comes because it's Christ working in you. You can't claim the full credit for it yourself. Credit goes to Jesus. We must maintain a humble attitude so that he gets the glory. And that's how this prayer ends. Look with me at verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. That's what it's all about. About God getting glory through us. God's more glorified when Christ works in us. When we become more like him. When we grow in this love and knowledge and act it out to our friends and family and neighbours. We make these better decisions, taking the best path rather than the that'll-do path. So finally, what's our response to be to all this? I say it's to pray. First of all, pray for yourself. There's no bigger prayer you can be praying for yourself and wanting for yourself to grow in than this. Pray that Jesus will be working in you to grow you in love and knowledge, that you'll be discerning what is best. Like We mess around asking for all sorts of different things, but this is what we should really be begging with God for, that he is doing this work in us. And we pray this for others. We pray it for our family and friends. To pray this prayer for someone else is one of the most loving things you can do for them. Because this is the thing of eternal significance that's going to last through. This is how you can really impact. Do you pray this prayer for God, to God, that they'll grow in this way? And also pray for this church. 
pray for the other members here and pray for the leadership. We all make decisions um, that are very tricky and difficult. But I want you to remember some of the leaders in church who are making decisions that affect all of us sitting here. Pray that they'll have really that true discernment from God. They'll be making the right decisions for the right motives. And that comes from this loving in knowledge perspective. As I finish this morning, I'm just going to leave about 30 seconds just so we can think through some people we maybe want to pray for and then I'm going to pray. Pray for all of us. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have such a great plan for us, a plan that involves us becoming pure and blameless like your son Jesus. Lord, that won't happen until the day that Christ returns. That won't happen fully, but I pray you'll be helping us become more like this as much as we can this side of his return. Lord, I pray that we'll have a desire to grow in love and knowledge. Lord, that you'll stir that up within us, that it'll be a delight to do this. And Lord, just please give us this discernment so we can make the best decisions. We pray for the decisions that we face this week and the many difficult ones that we maybe have in work and at home and with family. Lord, these are tricky and sometimes we feel lost. Lord, this week, please give us answers. Help us to think from your perspective. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.